0: I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to listen to a few reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. We will share another catechism lesson together, and Bishop Sheen will talk about penance. And before that, he'll give us a very interesting uh, talk about to spank or not to spank. And of course, that was broadcast back from the 1950s television series, Life is Worth Living. So I think we're looking forward to that. So let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom. Pray for us in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy this reflection entitled To Spank or Not to Spank. The Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen.
1: Friend, I have a very awkward confession to make. Last week it was discovered that our angel behind stage was looking at Milton Berle on television. And I have some interesting letters that we received in the course of the week. Here is a letter that uh, comes from Superior, Wisconsin. And this mother writes, On Sunday, while we were driving along a heavy wooded lane, Jimmy asked if God had planted all of these trees, to which we answered yes. And after a thoughtful moment, he asked, Are you sure Bishop Sheen didn't help him? (laughs) Well, I'm glad he thinks that I'm one of the Lord's cooperators. And here is a letter from Pittsburgh. It concerns Gary Goldberg, who is three years of age. In the process of sitting down to observe the Seder, Passover, the child asked his father to please let him wear a yarmulke, so that he might look like Bishop (laughs) Chee. Gary Goldberg, I'm sending you this yarmulke after the show. It's yours. (laughs) But no more... No more Goldbergs, no more O'Briens, no more Snicklefritzes should ride in for a yarmulke. And also, Gary, Adonai Ahavaka, which means in Hebrew, God love you. That's not bad for a Goy, is it, huh? And then, I, there was a picture of mine that appeared apparent, or no, I shouldn't say that. There was a picture that appeared in a Boston paper, it was sent to me by a lady from Waltham, Massachusetts. Now, this is the picture that was that was sent. It was a picture. I don't know where it came from, but I recognize it. It was a picture of me that was taken on a horse when I was about ten or eleven years of age. And uh, the mother said to the uh, child, "Now, George, this little boy is a famous man today." You have seen him on television. Do you know who he is? And George answered, yes, Davy Crockett. (laughs) You know, I always enjoyed horseback riding. I can't tell you how much. I just thought I'd split. I enjoyed it so much. Well, tonight we're going to talk about young people, and even such a subject as spanking a little later on. You don't know what it is, do you? Never heard the word before. Well, in general, it concerns, of course, the education of youth. There are two errors concerning the education of youth. One is an error that is prevalent in the Western world, which is the error of freedom in education, but which is a freedom identified with life. In other words, we have a theory of education in our Western world which believes the child should never be restrained, never be disciplined, never be reprimanded, never be corrected, that he must be very progressive. We don't know where he's going, but he must be on his way. (laughs) And the result is that we believe that complete emancipation, emancipation from law, emancipation from authority, emancipation from the limitation of ideals, emancipation from home, emancipation from work, emancipation from homework. The result is that children grow up like little green apples that are detached from a tree. No roots to tradition, and no branches pointing to the sky and to higher ideals. That's one false view. The other false view is that of the communistic world. The communistic world goes to the other extreme and believes in force in the education of youth. But this is peculiar about communism. Communism does not start that way. Communism, before it takes over a country, rather follows the idea of this erroneous Western concept of freedom identified with license. And they want the youth, therefore, not to be subject to parental authority, not subject to moral authority. Communists are even responsible to a great extent for, for cultivating the dope habit among the young, because if they, as they break down morality, they find it much easier to make inroads of communism in youth. But once the communists have taken over a country, then they give up the Western era entirely, and then they apply force. From that moment on, the children are indoctrinated. They must obey the party. They are not permitted to think for themselves or to enjoy anything for themselves. In China, the communist youth have often taken promises to work 18 hours a day Not wear shoes, wear only, eat only one meal a day in order to establish the revolution in China. The communist youth are even forbidden to marry unless they get the consent of the party. Now as that is wrong, so this is wrong. And in between, we have a golden mean. Here you have what might be called a freedom without discipline or rather, I suppose, perhaps we might say, even a love without freedom. Uh, Without discipline, I mean. And here we have a discipline without love. Now, in between is the golden mean, namely, love with discipline. And that is what we're going to recommend. Love with this First love. A child should never be educated according to a code or a set of rules because that merely makes for exterior behavior. It is his conscience that must be developed. And the way to develop anyone is giving them something to love. And in addition to all the lesser loves of earth, they ought to be inspired to love the highest manifestation of love that there is, namely the manifestation of the love of God in Christ who is the Son of God. Little children are taught about the love of God in this fashion. Then they are trained, first of all, in patience. They learn to be patient with, for example, the little kid brother who's always annoying them, knocking over their blocks. Simply because our Lord was patient with his disciples. Patient with the ignorant. And they will also learn to make little sacrifices, give to the missions, deny themselves, now and then, and these little denials, done for love, will train the child to make denials later on. He will be prepared to make denials of the flesh that are wrong. He will be prepared to make denials concerning drink that are wrong so that he will not become deordinated as regards sex, and he will not become an alcoholic as regards drink. Then, not only that, he he will understand the presence of God everywhere. And just as a child can understand very readily a prince who becomes a peasant, he can understand more readily a God who becomes a man. And as for prayer, He can understand, for example, that right now if he's looking at television, some great invisible rays are carrying this message into his living room. How does he contact that power? He contacts it by turning a dial. Now, prayer is the turning of the dial. And by it, we contact the invisible power of God. That is the meaning of prayer. Now, prayer to the youth need not be ostentatious. My niece was telling me about our little boy, Fulton. Two weeks ago, this actually happened. She took him into a restaurant. The restaurant was very crowded, and some lady said, here, sit down with me. And so my niece sat down with little, little Fulton, who was about three or four years of age. And as soon as he sat down, you know the shrill voice the children has, and he began, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, which we are about to receive through the bounty of Christ our Lord. And when he finished saying grace, he said, Mama, should I say the morning offering? <laughs> well, we needn't be as ostentatious as little Fulton was. But the point is that children children must be trained in the way of love. But Love with discipline. Now, I'm going to speak of discipline in symbolic language. I'm going to speak of it in terms of, uh, of spanking. Uh, that is, I know, you don't know what spanking is. This generation hasn't... The younger generation doesn't know the meaning of it, so I'll explain it. Gather around the television set, and I will tell you what spanking is. <laughs> A spanking is a form of punishment which attempts to make an impression by a depression. (laughs) If the front end of a ship is called the bow, then spanking is what is called a stern punishment. A spanking is also a form of punishment which very quickly penetrates to the seat of memory. (laughs) It is the education of a character by a pat on the back provided it is given often enough, hard enough and low enough. We might say that juvenile delinquency has increased in direct ratio and proportion to safety razors and garages. Hmm? Can you figure that one out? (laughs) Why has juvenile delinquency increased in direct proportion to safety razors and garages? Safety razors did away with razor straps. Garagea did away with woodshed. <laughs> now, when I speak of, of spanking, I am not referring to, uh, uh, to spanking just as such. I'm referring rather to it as a symbol uh, for discipline. And it is interesting to hear the arguments that are given against any form of discipline or against spanking Uh, Child psychologists today are generally universally opposed to any form of discipline or spanking. A child psychologist is one who will not strike a child except in (laughs) self-defense. There is one reason uh, given by... Uh, these child psychologists against any form of discipline, and that is, well, if I spank my child, my child won't love me. As a matter of fact, sometimes if you do not spank your child, your child won't love you at all. Child is very cute. Suppose you tell a child, do not put your finger in that ink bottle. child sticks his finger in the ink bottle. (laughs) Mother wipes off the ink and said, I told you not to stick your finger in that ink bottle. Now, don't do it again. The kid said, I'll have to wait a minute, but I'm going to try it anyway. (laughs) All right, I guess enough time has passed. I'll do it. That Skelton used to say, I do it. <laughs> and the mother said, I told her not to do that. He waits 30 seconds longer this time. The mother pays no attention to him. From that time on, the mother has no more authority. She's finished. Such mothers must learn that pain is not a serious as sin or evil. And when children grow up, they will not love their parents if their parents have not given to them a moral sense of right and wrong. Then another reason that is given by child psychologists against spanking is that all spanking is. is overpowering. Certainly it's overpowering. You go to school, your teacher is intellectually overpowering. Boy learns to play a trumpet. A music teacher is overpowering. You're going to get polio vaccination. The doctor's going to be overpowering. I warn you, I warn you, I warn you. There's nothing wrong in being overpowering. As a matter of fact, every boy likes his father because he's the biggest man in the block and because he can lick any other father in the block. Sometimes it's good for a kid to know that there are masters over him. Dogs love masters, so do horses, so do children. They love them more. And then it's also argued that, well, there must be no spanking because it's a, it's a mark of authority. It's a mark of authoritarianism. Authority? Certainly it is. A mark of authority. You know, listen. I was, I, uh, I was going to read you a poem tonight about spanking, and I forgot to bring it over here, and I sent somebody back after it, and they just brought a note out on the stage, great big blackboard that high. You should have seen it. It had no poem on it. it makes me so nervous. I got no poem tonight. that it it smacks of authority. Certainly authority. Parents have authority. They get the authority from God. That's where they derive it. And where does the state get the right to educate, the authority to educate children? The state has not the primary right. The state derives it from the parents. And authority is not for the benefit of the one who commands. Authority is for the benefit of the good of the subordinates. Pilate has authority on a plane, but he uses his authority not to turn somersaults in the air. He uses his authority for the good of the passengers. When our blessed Lord conferred authority on Peter, he began the conferring of that authority and the power of keys by asking him three times, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me? The root of authority is love. Believe me, it's much better to accept the authority of a person whom we know. Who's given us the fulfillment of the moral law and divine life such as the person of our Lord than to obey the synonymous authority of they say, or they are wearing green this year. Who are they? Who are they? We all have authority. It's better to obey the authority of the person of God who is also loved. I'm not going into arguments for spanking, but now I want to say something about in favor of the kids. You know, kids are not the only ones that make mistakes. Parents do, too. Ah, at this moment, I've become popular, and I can see little ears picking up all over the country Is this. Here are some things that children do not like. One, they do not like too many commands. For example, get your feet off the sofa. Don't touch that vase. If it's $40, it's a vase. $10, it's a vase. Don't touch that vase. Stop wiping your nose. Don't slam the door. Get your fingers off the window. After a while, there are so many commands that a little child doesn't know which is important and which is not. Furthermore, he's being educated in the way of of too many commands and orders the parents appear as a power to be obeyed rather than a defender of the moral law and an example of love. And also a child have another complaint. The other complaint against parents is that the child would not want, for example, uh, well, he doesn't like parents who don't listen to what he has to say. Parents say children won't listen. You know why they won't listen? It's because you don't listen. You don't listen about the model plane. You don't listen about the the doll. You don't listen about the the batting average, Mickey Mantle. These are just as important as the life of a child who's building a bridge is to you or cooking a meal. Children are not to be talked to. Children are to be talked with, and then children also wish that their parents would make a distinction between what is irritating and what is wrong, between what gets on parents' nerves and what is not right. For example, at two every kid has tantrums; at five every boy sticks a gun in his mother's waist and shouts, "Hold him up, mother!" <laughs> That's all right. At ten they're whistling; twelve they're using slang. These things are irritating, they get on parents' nerves, but they're not wrong. I know a little boy who thought that he should have something from his parents, so he he sent a bill to his mother. And the bill read, for running to the store ten times, one dollar. For babysitting five times, fifty cents. Sent the bill for a dollar and a half. You know what his mother did? The mother... The next day gave her bill. And this is the way her bill ran. Board and lodging, 12 years, (laughs) $4,800. Dyer for $28. (laughs) Clothing for 12 years, $600. Laundry and mending, $280. Doctor bills for chicken pox and mumps, $140. Nursing, $200. Paying damages for broken windows of neighbors, (laughs) $14.60. $14.60. <laughs> Veterinary fees for dog bought on 10th birthday, $38. <laughs> School books, pencils, director sets, toys, $49. Miscellaneous, $538.20. Total, $6,687.80. And the little boy says, Mom, anything you'd like me to do for you today? <laughs> people remember that you have in your quiver only one arrow, the arrow of youth. And be sure of your target, and that your target is the God of love, and you will always be happy, and America will be proud of you. So will we all.
0: Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll free at 1 866 357 4336, or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic Family Videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics, such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria, Canada. We now continue with the program Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith.
1: Peace be to you. Continuing the sacrament of penance, we review the essential acts of penance one, the confession or the telling of sins, two, contrition or sorrow three satisfaction for sins thus far we have treated confession or the actual telling of sins though not completely it might be asked or objected at this point there is all kinds of telling of sins. There is a literary confession. And there is also a psychoanalytic confession. What is the difference between between any of these and sacramental confession? Well, let us take literary confession, such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau and also those who write modern confessions do not confess sins for the same reason that we do in the sacrament. Rousseau had a great pride in revealing himself. So also in modern confessions, there is almost implied such a sentiment as this. See what a rogue am I? Not only is there pride, but there is also an intent to arouse similar emotions, feelings, urges, concupiscences and passions in the minds of the reader. Every disclosure of vice contributes to the increase of pleasure. When St. Augustine wrote his confession, it was great shame not pride. And he did not tell any of his grave sins. One would almost think, reading the Confessions of St. Augustine, that the worst thing he ever did was to steal an apple. He made that stand for all of his very grave sins. Then he said that he wrote his confessions in order that everyone might know the mercy of God. If you would ever like to read the finest piece of analysis of soul that has ever been done, read the Confessions of St. Augustine. We come now to the other objection. What is the difference between telling one's sins and confessions and telling sins to a psychoanalyst or to a psychiatrist? There are many differences. In psychoanalysis, there is an avowal of the attitude of mind and particularly an avowal of unconsciousness. Confession, on the contrary, is an avowal not of a state of mind but a state of conscience. It is an avowal of guilt. Confession is the communion of the conscience and God. The mere revealing of one's subconsciousness is never very humbling. Most people, when they go to a psychoanalyst and tell their state of mind, will often end it up by saying, Doc, did you ever hear a case like that before? They are very proud of it. Another difference between the two is Really, everybody naturally wants to do his own telling, for he knows better than anyone else his guilt. Let me tell it is a primary right of the human heart. Confession satisfies that. Every decent mind resents probing. probing by alien minds he wants to swing open the portals of his own conscience he wants no one breaking down doors from the outside the very uniqueness of personality gives him the right to state his own case in his own words And that is what happens in confession. We are our own witness. We are our own prosecuting attorney. We are, to some extent, our own judge. No soul likes to be studied like a bug. And another difference is that which concerns the person to whom the avowals are made. Confession is always made to a representative of the moral order. The analyst represents not the moral order but the emotional order. And when you go to a representative of the moral order you go there to be made better. To have your sins forgiven not to have them explained away. In confession, the relationships between the confessor and the penitent are utterly impersonal. The very structure of the confession protects the penitent from revealing his identity. There's a screen. There's a veil. Nothing can be passed. The priest cannot see through. So impersonal is this relationship that the penitent may go on indifferently as far as the validity of Confession is concerned, and he may go indifferently to any priest. It makes no difference to which one he goes. I say, therefore, that the guilty conscience wants to avow his guilt not to a theorist of a particular system, but to a mediator or a divinity. That is why the church asks that a priest who absolves the penitent be in the state of grace, a participant himself of divine life. Psychoanalysis never raises the question of the moral fitness of the analyst. He may be beating his wife at home. The church always raises that question and raises it very seriously too. And we are never made worse by admitting the need for absolution. We are not made worse by admitting that we are all broken hearted. And when we go to confession, we are broken hearted. We face our guilt. We face our sin. And because we do, we have the great advantage of being able to let God in. For God can get in only to a broken heart. In an actual confession, the penitent is never cited and forced to go. He receives no summons, but he goes of his own accord. He is not accused, he accuses himself. There are no outside witnesses, he witnesses against himself as the culprit. Therefore, there is no question of vindictive justice as there is in civil courts. The reason one goes to confession is in order to be healed, to be reincorporated to Christ, and also to receive his mercy. When we go to confession, we are apt to forget sins. If we inadvertently forget to mention even a grave sin, there is no need to go back to confession. It is forgiven in the intention to confess the sin, but... We should mention it explicitly in the next confession. No one seems to realize the great advantage there is in confession as regards character building. It confers grace, gives power to the will. An unbeliever once wrote, The custom of monthly confession is a magnificent safeguard for the morals of youth. The shame engendered by this humble confession perhaps saves a greater number than the holiest of natural motives. Now, assuming the confession is made, we come to the second act of the sacrament, namely contrition or sorrow. Contrition means to break, to crush. From the Latin, contere. Let me tell you what contrition is not. First, it is not a worldly remorse. There is the remorse of the world. The remorse of the world is related only to the past. It is not related to a standard, not related to God, not related to the divine life of Christ. It is a wish that what was done be undone. It therefore does not make any reference at all either to neighbor or to self. Uh, The great difference between the two is evident in the case of Judas and Peter. Both sin. Our blessed Lord said that both would sin. He called Peter a devil and Scripture says that Judas himself became possessed by the devil and yet Peter was forgiven and Judas was not. Why was that? Well, it was because Judas repented unto himself. That is the exact expression of scripture. Peter repented unto our Lord. Judas had remorse. Peter had sorrow or contrition. Contrition is an interior attitude or disposition of the soul. When it is sincere, it is that. Those who say, and there are many who do, all that a Catholic has to do when he sins is to go to confession and admit sins and he comes out white as snow. Oh, no, he does not. The mere confession of sins without sorrow and a firm purpose of amendment does not make a valid confession. The absolution of the priest is not efficacious unless there is a serious sorrow. In fact, under certain conditions which I will explain one can have remission of sins without the telling of sins. Sorrow there must be. Under no condition is absolution effective without sorrow. Here is the story. It is only Only a story, but it indicates and reveals how important sorrow is. According to this fiction, a man went to confession, and during confession, which happened in the priest's own room, the man was a pickpocket and stole the priest's watch. Then at the end of confession, he said, Oh, Father, I forgot to tell you I stole the watch. The priest said, uh, you must restore it to the owner. Uh, The man said, uh, father, I will give it to you. No, he said, uh, said the priest, I do not want it. You must give it to the owner. Well, said the man, the owner won't take it back. Well, in that case, said the priest, you may keep it. There was no sorrow. Sorrow, penance there must be. Remember how much our blessed Lord emphasized it? The kingdom of God is near at hand. Repent! Repent and believe the gospel. Our blessed Lord said that sorrow was so important that he introduced the kingdom of God with it and repentance. As he put it, the kingdom of God is near at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It was the first sermon of Peter. It was also the sermon of John the Baptist. And penance was the last sermon our blessed Lord preached. Sorrow, therefore, is absolutely essential. And why does God insist upon it? Why is he not indifferent to sin Because God is holy. He makes a distinction between the sinner and the sin. He wants to separate the two. The disease and the patient. The error and the student. Therefore, we must be sorry. In passing, I might say that a Catholic suffers more when he sins and one who has not the faith. The reason a Catholic suffers more is because of his greater love. He understands better the love of our Lord in redemption and in the church. Imagine two men marrying two old shrewd. One of the men was never married before. The other was married to a beautiful, kind, lovely, devoted wife who died. Which of the two men do you think suffer the more? Obviously, the one who knew the better love. Catholics, therefore, are in great agony when they sin and not really, for any other reason than because they hurt someone they love. But, though we suffer more, we never fall into despair. That is the difference with the world. Our sorrow is not only a grief directed toward our Lord, as I shall explain, is also a detestation of sin with the purpose of not sinning again. Sorrow is of two kinds. It is imperfect and it is perfect. Imperfect sorrow is the sorrow that we have because we dread the loss of heaven and we fear hell. The perfect sorrow is the sorrow that we have because we offended God. When you go to confession, at the end of it, while the priest is giving you absolution, you recite the act of contrition. Notice that the act of contrition combines both kinds of sorrows. Now listen to it as I say. O my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended Thee. And I detest all my sins because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. But most of all, because they offend Thee, my God, who art all good and deserving of all my love. I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to confess my sins, to do penance, and to mend my life. Amen. Perhaps I can illustrate these two kinds of sorrows by telling you about two children. Presume they are twins. They both disobey their mother in an equal way. One of the children goes to the mother and says, Oh, Mommy, I'm sorry. Now I can't go to the picnic, can I? That is imperfect contrition. The other one throws her arms around the mother and begins to cry and says, Mommy, forgive me, I love you. That is perfect contrition. Imperfect contrition is sufficient to receive absolution in sacramental confession. But suppose you are in a state of sin and you cannot go to confession. Suppose you're in a plane that is falling or you're in a soldier. You are a soldier going into battle or you're in any state of grievous sin and there's no way of going immediately to confession. What should you do? You make an act of perfect contrition. A perfect contrition will remit sins provided that you have the intent to go to sacramental confession at the earliest opportunity. Along with this sorrow there was the purpose of amendment because we say we promise to amend Now, the purpose of amendment is not the certitude of amendment. That would be presumption. St. Paul says, if any man thinks he can stand, let him take heed, lest he fall. What is meant by a firm resolve not to sin is the sincere desire now to do all in our power with the help of God's grace not to fall again. So we examine ourselves and we think up ways of avoiding the fall. I find an illustration of that in this very lesson. In the first part of it, as I was talking to you about confession in general, there was a kind of a tick. I looked about to see if it was my clock, my stopwatch. I stuck it in my pocket, and still the little tick went on. Maybe you heard it. And then I finally discovered that it was the electric typewriter that I had left on. I had been doing some typing and lo and behold, the tick got in behind the voice. Now that's a confession to me, is it not? And with it, sorrow, I'm telling you, and also a firm purpose of amendment. I just shut off the typewriter. So too when we are in the state of sin when we are absolved as a result of sacramental confession we take the firm purpose not to sin again and the way to make up for sin is to do away with many of the occasions of sin and to make up for the sin as soon as possible. If we are nasty sarcastic We must make up for it. Many people will cut others, cut them to the quick, with nasty remarks, never, never once ask pardon. They just let it pass. They forget it. such a disposition certainly does not indicate, indicate a very firm purpose of amendment. If you have stolen something, you have to return it. If you have been guilty of calumny, you rectify it. Then I say, you avoid the occasions of sin. It might be a certain reading. It might be certain companionship. It might be certain visits. All of these are avoided in order to prove the sincerity of our sorrow. Sorrow, in a certain sense, is eros in tears. Eros is the god of. Sorrow is an intention to abandon the ego. It is hard. Sometimes it's like being skinned alive. Have you ever had an old plaster peeled off your body? Well, that's the way it is to to peel away sins. To get rid of some of them. To take a firm purpose of amendment. But to conclude the subject of sorrow, you might ask me which is more common in confession, perfect or imperfect contrition? I would say perfect contrition. That is my experience. I believe that most people are sorry for their sins not just because they dread the loss of heaven and fear hell. It is because they have hurt our Lord. After all, it is the cross that reveals the dimension of sin. No one ever thoroughly sees sin in its utter nakedness until he understands redemption. Take the errors and the stupidity and the crimes of every day. People summarize them by saying, oh, what a fool I made of myself. There is a world of difference between that and Oh, what a sinner am I. When we go to confession, there is always a crucifix in the confessional box. And as we kneel there, we see goodness nailed to the cross. And incidentally, I should have told you too, when I answer the objection, why go to confession to a priest? Remember that we priests have to go We are sinners too, and we have to go every week. When we see the crucifix before us, we see our own biography. There is no need of anyone writing my life. There it is nailed to a cross. I can read my thoughts in that crown of thorns. The nails are like so many pens, the parchment, the skin. There I am as I really am. far be it therefore for any of us to say oh we are not as bad as the Romans and the Jews who crucified our blessed Lord let us not forget that they did not crucify our Lord except physically sin crucified him and in that we are all equal we are all representatives When we go to confession, we gather up all of the rubbish of our lives, the kind of rubbish that we have thrown down into the cellar of our lives as we throw rubbish down into the cellar of our house and we take it all up and lay it at the feet of our Lord. If you have ever walked in a Saturday afternoon or evening to a large city church with rows of confessionals on either side, you have seen feet protruding from the little curtains of the confession. Big feet, little feet, male feet, female feet. These feet look like wriggling little worms. They belong to people who have finally come to disown their sins by disowning them. The only part of them which is revealed to the world, which sticks out from under the curtain, is the feet, the lowliest part, a symbol of the absence of pride. When a Catholic goes to confession, instead of putting his best foot forward, he puts his worst foot forward. And every penitent who has ever made a confession, as he enters that box, is said, I may fool others, but what a fool am I to fool myself? And what a sinful fool I am to think I can fool God.
0: You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I hope you will continue to bring friends to the program, and, uh, gather around uh, each week as we learn our faith together. And so until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.